thank you all for coming. I am thrilled beyond words that we have such an incredible group of people assembled in the Motor City. Um, I know that you have taken time away from work, that you're going to be working extra this weekend and tonight to make it possible for you to break away, such as the life of a communicator. Um, yesterday, I got a text message from my friend Meredith, who's also here with us, who said, wait, I have to quote this. I'm not kidding, Kanye West is in the fitness center. <laughs> I said, I'll be right down. And with that, I knew that this conference was going to be awesome. <laughs> so, you know, we're where Kanye is, so we're all sorted. Um, but, you know, I really want to take a moment to thank all of the session designers and the speakers and the sponsors and the organizers of this conference because yours is the work and energy and ideas that are going to make it a success. So if you could, please stand up for a moment and just be recognized by your colleagues. Session designers, sponsors, speakers, come on, get up. <laughs> it's going to be good, I promise you. It's going to be the best ever. Um, so. Uh, I also want to take a moment to thank our incredible staff. Um, they work for months and months and months to make sure that this is a world-class event for everybody. Um, and, you know, this is their three days. Um, and so if they could, Maggie, Emma, uh, Tristan, and of course, Sean, would you please stand up for a moment? Um, and finally, I want to thank all of you for what you're about to give. Um, yesterday, two people uh, grabbed me over cocktails and said, you know, I love this conference uh, because it's a place that feels honest. It's a place that feels like I can say exactly what's on my mind, and I can speak to the actual anxieties that drive me. I can talk about my successes, and I can talk about my failures without judgment. Instead, you get some helpful tips, sometimes too many helpful tips, but it's good to be candid about you know, our shortcomings as a field. Um, and I will say that I am personally grateful to all of you because this is, my, this is my favorite event of the year. This is the place where I come to recharge. It's the place I come to see some folks who really understand my world, understand what my day is like, um, and where I get the ideas that keep me going. So I want to thank all of you because this really is a pleasure for me to be able to do. Um, and in that spirit, I want to be candid with you about one of the anxieties that I have. Um, and it's something that has been nagging at me for the last few months for somewhat obvious reasons. Um, you know, as a member of the board, my job is to ensure that we are achieving our mission, the mission of the communications network. Uh, I want to read that for a moment. Uh, our mission is to support foundations and nonprofits to improve lives through the power of smart communications. Now, I'm confident that we have the right people assembled here in Detroit for uh, the conversations about communications. We've got the media folks, we've got incredible writers, we've got graphic designers, we've got, um, gosh, I'm gonna miss people, da you know, incredible data folks, we've got these digital badasses who are changing the world. Um, and so I think that we have all of the right players assembled for what Tyrion Lannister calls the great game. You know, we are, ready. You know, the forces are aligned. But I want to make sure that as a field, communicators are constantly focused on improving people's lives. 
The mission of the network isn't to make communications better. It's to make people's lives better. And I think in communications, we often get tied up in the day-to-day -day work of communicating. Um, and we sometimes fail to step back and think about the moral purpose of what we're trying to achieve. And improving people's lives is the moral calling of this field. And I think, you know, all reason tells us that we are at a really defining moment as a country, um, and we're at a defining moment as a field. And Sean talks about how the network helps those who do good do better. And that isn't a nice to have. I live in Baltimore, and every single day, I see that that mission is essential. It is a moral priority. And I would say that a failure to achieve that mission is a moral failing. And so with that, you know, I feel that you know, we can be mindful of how communications is essentially the practice of bridging the gap between who we are and who we want to be, who we are and who we want people to think we are. And there's a lot of work to be done with that. I'm so glad to be doing it with all of you. I want to thank you for coming. Good morning, everyone. My name is Danny Howe, and I serve as the Senior Director of Strategic Communications for Casey Family Programs. And I am very, very fortunate today to be able to make some introductions for our first conversation um, with Aaron Belkin. I, have, I just want to say I've had a chance to spend a couple minutes with Aaron um, before the, the session, about 15 minutes. And here's a man who has moved mountains, who has changed the, the, the US military establishment. Um, and it's a classic example of strategic communications at its best. So you're all in uh, for a big treat today. So uh, first, a little bit about Casey. We are the nation's largest operating foundation focused on safely reducing the need for foster care and building communities of hope for children and families in America. This is our 50th anniversary, 50 years. Thank you. And we are so proud of the work that we've done. Um, Founded 50 years ago by Jim Casey, that you probably know more for founding United Parcel Service. So we are in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and uh, we are uh, committed to long-lasting improvements to children and families and where they live. We also have an initiative called 2020 Building Communities of Hope, which is a nationwide effort to improve the safety and success of children. Um, it's my honor to introduce two amazing individuals today, and I want to say that uh, we've had a change in the program, and I still can think that we're gonna, gonna, I'm going to be introducing two amazing individuals. Michelle Norris is not feeling well today, and unfortunately she's not able to join us. Let's send her all some healing thoughts. But worry not, we have our faithful leader, Sean Givens, who's going to be stepping in and doing the interview. And I think Sean has done an incredible job with ComNet. Do you agree with me? Okay. Sean, thank you so much. And actually, this change is appropriate because Sean has uh, recently interviewed uh, Aaron for uh, Social Innovation Review, uh, April 16th issue. Uh, so take a look at that article. I'll mention uh, a little bit more about it in a couple minutes. So um, as I mentioned, Aaron is a mover of mountains. He's a scholar, an author, an activist, a dancer, 
He has um, written and edited more than 25 scholarly articles, chapters, and books. His book titled Bring Me Men was first published by Columbia University Press in 2020 and then picked up by Oxford University Press in 2013. Since 1999, Aaron has served as a founding director of the Palm Center, which the advocate named as one of the most effective gay rights organizations in the country. He designed and implemented much of the public education campaign that eroded popular support for the military anti-gay discrimination that later led to the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. When that repeal came, the president of the Evelyn and Walter Haas Jr. Fund said, this day would never have arrived without the persistent grinding work of the Palm Center. Harvard Law Professor Janet Haley said of Aaron that probably no single person deserves more credit for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Again, I encourage you all to read uh, Sean's interview um, in the April uh, 2016 issue of Stanford Social Innovation Review. You can find it online, um, where Aaron artfully describes how to use strategic communications to move what he refers to as 10,000-pound boulders that lie in the path of significant social change. As Palm's director, Aaron has crafted a strategic model for using social science research to shape public opinion, a model that he describes in um, his two, 2011 ebook, How We Won. I would definitely check that out because it's been referred to by many as a best practices guide for civil rights fights going forward. So, and the model we, uh, we were chatting earlier has not just worked once, it, it's worked several times. And recently there was a change in military process uh, uh, military um, policies toward transgendered individuals. So once again, a change that we thought would take 20 years took three. So um, how about a round of applause for, for Aaron? That's just incredible. He moved another mountain. Um, this is the most interesting part of, of, of Aaron's background. He also teaches uh, political science at San, Fr San Francisco State University, where he teaches a lecture course to 700 undergraduates on delusion and paranoia in American politics. <laughs> Didn't know that took place. Aaron, I'm guessing that this political season is rich with examples <laughs> for your students. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor to introduce Sean Gibbons and Aaron Belkin. A little bit better. Good morning. That sounds more like Detroit. All right. Welcome to Detroit. Welcome to the D. How'd you guys uh, do last night? I uh, I'm not going to make Aaron, this lovely man, wait for too long. But there's a couple things I need to do. I want to hear what he has to say as much as you do. But a couple announcements, a little bit of gratitude, and then we'll get to it. Does that work for you guys? All right, so first in the uh, news department, this. This is a brand new comnetwork.org. Y'all been there yet? A year in the making. We did this with the good folks at Atlantic Media Strategies. Gene Ellen and Joan, are you out there somewhere? In the back, turn around, give it up for those guys. They donated their services to bring this to us. It's amazing. I'll tell you, the singular purpose we had behind making this was making the network more useful. I know the three days that we're together each year are extraordinary and amazing, but 
The aim here was to say it doesn't have to end there. You don't have to go it alone, and you don't have to just do it once a year. You can actually gather over the course of the other 360 days that we're not together. This is an incredible new thing that we have to offer you. But here's the quantum leap forward, if we can just go ahead. The new members community. And this is unfortunately only available to those of you who are members, which I know you all are. Uh, you can find out more about this. We've got a kiosk set up on the third floor. I noticed the lovely young Danielle who's with us uh, was a little lonely yesterday because you probably don't know what it is. So let me tell you really quickly. Uh, we tasked ourselves with this incredible objective. We wanted to help you find a needle in a haystack. Okay? So in this thing, which is built and working right now, if you haven't been there, that's okay. You can do it today or tomorrow over the next few weeks. Uh, you can find anybody in the network with the kind of precision we've never had before. So let's say you're going to meet somebody today or you met somebody last night and their name is Sean. Uh, you can go in there and all the Sean's who are a member of the network will pop up. Or let's say you live in Connecticut or Michigan, right? And you want to find out who else in the network lives in Michigan. You can find them that way. Uh, here's the incredible thing. We've already populated this with your name, your organization, and your title. So you're going to want to go in and make sure we got that right, because in some cases we probably didn't. Um, but as with all things, if you give, you're going to get. We also have the ability to let you guys find people based on what you're good at. So if you're really good at strategy or speech writing or social media or whatever it may be, if you tell us that, everybody in the network will be able to find you. So eventually you might be able to say, I met somebody at the conference, their name is Eleanor, they're good at social media, and I think they live in Massachusetts. And maybe there's six Eleanors, but they'll all pop up in here. You'll be able to find people with incredible precision. As I said, the needle in the haystack is now at your fingertips. The really cool thing, and I won't go on too much more about this because you're basically going to have to explore this for yourselves or get some help. We'll have some webinars and we have that kiosk upstairs. You can also have discussions. So let's say you're really interested in brand. Well, you can now, unlike our listserv, you can now actually go in and have discussions about brand. They're threaded. They're archived. Or let's say you're about to develop a new social media policy for your organization and you want to virtually workshop it. You can upload the file and invite people to come in and have comments and give you some feedback or they can share theirs that you can use as a model. It's basically Facebook for the communications geeks that we all are. It's really, really incredible and really powerful. But it's not going to work unless you guys decide to give it a go. So I'm so grateful to the folks at AMS. And actually, this piece of it was built by the good folks at Candoris. They're in the lab. So please go ahead and give that a go. So now I'm just going to do uh, a little bit of level setting so everybody knows how to get around. The good news is you all made your way in here. So I think we're kind of ahead of the game. But uh, to make your way around the conference today, you can go to comnet16.org. That's the website. You can go to the app. How many of you have the app, by the way? Who doesn't have the app? Maybe that's the better <laughs> question. And what's wrong with you? Uh, I'm just kidding. I'll help you get it if you need it. Uh, you have the app. You have the program, which we gave you when you checked in. It's a little blue book. It's beautiful. It was made by our friends at Fenton. Uh, and then. I, they took mine away, but uh, let's see. Who am I going to pick on? Lamont. You stand up for a quick second. You hold up your badge, please, sir. Turn around to everybody so they can see it. The lovely Lamont is showing you his badge. <laughs> can you open it? it? That's his name, by the way. That's a very helpful piece of information. But if you open it up, nobody did this last year. It really surprised me. But I just want to show this to you. Well, it has our sponsors. But then maybe go one more. There we go. The schedule's in there. So you're literally wearing the schedule around your neck. So if you need uh, to know where you're going next, you're walking around with it, frankly. But listen, sometimes there's going to be times when you just don't know uh, or you need to talk to a human being because you have a different question that 
the app doesn't answer or, or the schedule around your neck doesn't answer. There's a bunch of folks walking around the conference wearing red shirts with the new network logo. Just find them. They're happy to help. Uh, thank you, sir. You can sit down. Uh, so now just a little bit of gratitude. Uh, this is a bit of a bittersweet moment for those of us on the network board because we're saying goodbye, or maybe a better way to think about this is so long for now, to a few folks who've had an extraordinary role in shaping this organization. Uh, today, or over the last couple of days, uh, we have uh, bid farewell, or so long for now, to Minna Jung of Earth Justice, former chair of the board, and many, a good friend to many of you. Uh, Rebecca Arno, Rebecca, you're right there. Can you stand up for a quick second? Rebecca is a former chair of the network. She has been an incredible friend and partner, not just to me, but to all of you. Uh, and Craig Ziegler, who couldn't be with us because I think he's at his board meeting, uh, who was the treasurer of the network for many, many years and really helped to build this up into an institution. So we are saying, I guess, goodbye for now to them. But as I said, it's bittersweet. The sweet part is we're saying hello to a few people who are just extraordinary individuals. Uh, their energy and enthusiasm already, it's really evident they're going to be real assets to this organization. And I want to pick on them if I can. Jade Floyd of the Case Foundation. Jade, you want to stand up? Ken Wine of the New York Public Library. And Stefan Lanfer of the Barr Foundation. Stefan's right here up in front. Really amazing individuals, so grateful. This is almost a full-time job serving on the board, uh, in addition to the day jobs that you guys all have. You can imagine what that must be like. Uh, let's go ahead. I want to tell you a quick story about why these folks are so great, really briefly, because I think it's kind of important. It's about why we're here. So about a year and a half ago, uh, the board gathered, and there we all are, handsome bunch. Uh, and one of the things on our agenda was to figure out where to take the conference this year. So those of you who know the network know that the conference moves. So in 2014, we were in Philly. Last year, we were in San Diego. And yeah, that was fun. Uh, but this will be better. And so for 2016, the question was, where do we bring the conference? It was going to come to the central part of the United States. And of course, there's lots of really wonderful American cities that we could have brought the conference to. But the board quickly zeroed in on Detroit. Uh, now, as you know, this is, and I hope you've seen for yourself, it's an incredible city. Uh, but let's not kid ourselves. This is a city that's had some tough times lately. We're going to hear a little bit more about that later today. Uh, but it's on the comeback. Uh, it's a center of innovation and creativity. It was recently named the UNESCO City of Design, the only one in the whole country that's gotten that designation. And if you've been out, and I know a number of you have hit the restaurants, it's a pretty incredible food scene as well. There's a lot happening here. But the board decided unanimously, let's come to Detroit. But again, because of some of the stories that have come out of this city, uh, there was some question, reasonable question, would people come? And here's where I get to thank you, because you're here. This is the largest conference we have ever had. So that's a big deal. More people came to Detroit than to San Diego, to Philadelphia, to New Orleans. You showed up. And my guess is it's for the exact same reason that the board chose to come here because it was the right thing to do, because you want to be part of the solution, because you want to be part of the Detroit comeback story. So thank you very, very, very much. This is something else we share in common. I think this is something we all believe. I think this is something we share in common. Does anybody, I'm going to call you out, anybody not think this is true? I know this in my bones. These are some of the issues that we work on. These are some of the issues the organizations that we serve work towards. And I think we all know that without smart strategic communications, none of this will happen. 
It's just that simple, right? Particularly why. Here's some evidence, though. I think you may have seen this already. It's in the conference program, the little note I sent to you. This has been blowing my mind for weeks. This is a study that Nielsen does every year. And I look at this, and I see this. It's the information age in a chart, OK? Uh, this traces over the last three years the amount of ideas and information or media that people are consuming on a daily basis. The average American adult has, in this new information age, started to consume more and more and more information each and every year. Nine hours and 32 minutes, I think it says, then nine hours and 39 minutes. But last year, and this is not statistically significant, this is astounding, it went from nine hours and 39 minutes of reading books, listening to the radio, watching Game of Thrones, hanging out on Facebook and apparently Pokemon Go, to 10 hours and 39 minutes. Each of you, on average, are consuming 10 hours and 39 minutes of information and ideas a day. That begs a lot of questions. And those are questions we're going to ask and we may not answer them, but we're going to start to ask and dig into them over the course of the next couple of days. But I will tell you this. That is absolutely amazing. And if you heard this from your mom, my mom used to say this all the time, you are what you eat. We're consuming a lot. And so the ideas that we care about, the issues that we care about, that we want to see happen, the kinds of things that Aaron has spent his career working towards, it's about finding a way into that diet. And that's an enormous challenge, an enormous, enormous challenge. That is a boulder that you're going to need to push up the hill, the boulder that's in the road that Aaron talks about. So we're going to get to this in one quick second. I do want to acknowledge uh, just as, as my friend Andrew said, it's not an opportunity, it's a necessity. But I want to acknowledge one individual. I didn't see him walk in, but I think you're here. Dr. Jones, are you with us? There you are, sir. If you were with us in San Diego, I'm going to run off stage real quick. If you were with us in San Diego, sir, this is Dr. Clarence B. Jones. You know who this is. But I know a number of you weren't. This gentleman was the counsel and draft speechwriter for Dr. Martin Luther King. He took the letter from the Birmingham jail out of the Birmingham jail. He helped to draft the dream speech. The first seven paragraphs, the promissory note, the one that Pope Francis quotes, the one that Barack Obama quotes often, those are his words, word for word, spoken by Martin Luther King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. He was the attorney to James Baldwin. He is an American hero. He is a lion of the civil rights movement. And he is... He is with us for the next couple of days. This is a national treasure. I hope you take the time to take a few minutes and drink in from his greatness. He is oh, an wow. incredible, <laughs> extraordinary individual, and I'm so grateful that he's here. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. So why don't we get to it, because I've been rudely making Aaron wait here quietly. How you doing? Thank you, good. You've been busy. I've been very busy. Um, I want to say something first, if that's OK. Please. Um, I have been around conferences for 30 years, including being a conference planner. I have never seen a better run operation than this um, from the moment last year's conference ended. And it is such an honor to be here with you. Oh, thank you. And 
I, seriously, and, um, uh, and to learn from the people who are here. Um, so thank you. My pleasure. I got to tell you, it's these guys, uh, and, and Maggie and Tristan and Emma. So thank big thank is the mic still going? Yeah. Uh, why don't we go ahead and start with uh, the past. So 1992, Bill Clinton is running for president. He makes a promise. Do you want to take us back and sort of just dial everybody into the history? Sure. Um, uh, the military has been firing gay people since 1778 when uh, George Washington drummed a soldier out of Valley Forge for, uh, for uh, sodomy. And uh, President Clinton, uh, candidate Clinton, said he would change that and as president. Uh, that's the first thing he tried to do to get the Pentagon to lift its ban on gays and lesbians in the military, and he failed. And an overwhelming coalition formed uh, against him and managed to pass a law in Congress called Don't Ask, Don't Tell that uh, required the military to fire anyone who was discovered to be gay. So that was, that was the problem. This was 1993? Uh, yeah, it was, the, it was literally uh, right out of the gate when his presidency started, when he came into office in January 93. And then the regulations and laws get put in place at the end of 93 and the beginning of 94. Gotcha. And to justify this policy of don't ask, don't tell, which was a considered or sold as a political compromise, the Rand Corporation came in. Tell me a little bit about what their role was. They're a think tank uh, based in Los Angeles. Does a lot of work around the world. Some really great work, but in this case, so this this was what made Don't Ask, Don't Tell uh, an interesting uh, phenomenon um, from a communications perspective. Um, was because there was a there was kind of a dual structure behind it in terms of holding it in place. And I, I think of kind of two pillars that propped it up. So the real reason for uh, for discrimination. Um, was that the generals and admirals didn't like gay people. And you can call that intolerance or homophobia or whatever you want. But, um, and there's lots of evidence to show that that was the case. But even though it was still a homophobic era in American culture, it would not have been permissible for the generals and admirals to go to Congress and say, we can't allow gays and lesbians to serve in the military because we don't like them. And so they made up a phony rhetoric uh, you could think of it as the military effectiveness conversation or the unit cohesion conversation. And what they said was that, um, well, we, we like gays and lesbians as people, but the reason we can't allow them to serve in the military is because they harm the military. They, they shatter unit cohesion. They shatter readiness and effectiveness. And that's the reason why we have to discriminate. And the social scientists, the scholars, uh, knew from the outset that that second set of justifications, that, that military effectiveness pillar, was, to be frank, a lie. Uh, even the military's own research, as, as you mentioned, the Rand Corporation, which was an Air Force-created think tank, had, had been showing for years that gays and lesbians are great service members and don't undermine the military at all. But it's very different for scholars to know something than for members of Congress and journalists and generals and admirals to know it. So, so that was the problem. We had to figure out whether to go after the homophobia or the, the kind of phony rhetoric. And there were a lot of folks at the outset, folks in the LGBT community and, and, and allies, who looked at this policy and, of course, were horrified. But many people had a different, I mean, maybe if you could, just explain sort of what were some of the different strategies were brought to bear. And you did something quite different. And, and if you could explain what that was. Yeah, and I should say, communications was only one piece of the strategic puzzle. And so the repeal required 
uh, groups to work on litigation and lobbying and grassroots organizing. So, so we're just talking about the public education piece. But from the point of view of, of communications, the groups were following George Lakoff's advice, even though it was before George Lakoff um, had written uh, Don't Think Like an Elephant. Um, and, 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 and the community, uh, the, the, the LGBT community, had come up with its own frame because um, you know we didn't like the military's frame about gays and lesbians hurt the military, so we decided uh, the groups decided to use a fairness frame and a democracy frame, and their argument was that um, don't ask, don't tell compromised American citizenship and integrity and fairness. And that didn't work. I came onto the scene, and I thought that was a strategy that was bound to fail. Um, and, and, and perhaps the best illustration of that is when uh, Barry Winchell was beaten to death with a baseball bat. Um, Do you want to just explain this? Many people probably don't remember this story. Yeah, this was a gay soldier who was beaten to death with a baseball bat at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And there was two weeks of above-the-fold New York Times coverage of this. And uh, towards the end of this conversation, um, the former commandant of the Marine Corps published an op-ed in the New York Times, and he said, really sorry about the beating to death with a baseball bat. Um, we get that discrimination is unfair, but um, as sad as it is to be unfair and undemocratic, the lives of our troops are more important than fairness. And because gays and lesbians undermine unit cohesion, uh, we have to keep discrimination, don't ask, don't tell, in place. In other words, the unit cohesion rationale, the military effectiveness set of arguments, the phony rhetoric, I'm, I'm, I'll refer to them as lies, um, the phony rhetoric was used as a bludgeon to keep the LGBT community in its place, and it would, that, that, that rhetoric would always trump rhetoric about no fair... No pun intended. I, 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 I will not mention the presidential campaign in, this, uh, in, the, in the conversation, unless so, so called on. Uh, um, uh, um, but that, that set of rhetoric, of, of discourses, was, was always going to win out over the democracy argument, um, even though it was phony. So, 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 so to my mind, getting rid of that military effectiveness argument in the minds of opinion leaders and the public was a necessary step for all the other strategies to work. Now, how did you get there? Because obviously, almost everyone else in the community is moving in this direction of fairness and equality, and yet you saw things quite differently. How? Um, well, it took 10 years. Um, That's definitely worth noting. We're going to get to that. Playing the long game was critical. But, but how? What, 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 at that moment, did you say, everyone else is going in this direction? I think this is completely wrong-headed, mistaken. Well, the first thing we did, um, and this was actually with a little bit of guidance from Stuart Burton, who's here in the audience today, um, was published an op-ed um, in the New York Times in response to that op-ed that the uh, former commandant of the Marine Corps had published. Um, and we, uh, we got uh, a former Reagan and former Clinton official to sign the op-ed. And the op-ed just went through all the research that showed that no, actually, gays and lesbians help the military. It's discrimination that hurts the military. And, and as soon as that op-ed was published, uh, foundation officers responded immediately and started sending checks. And other activists started to take note. And they, they, they saw, wow, like the New York Times editorial page is, is buying into this, this refutation of the unit cohesion rationale, maybe, maybe there's an opportunity to start having that conversation with the public, the phony conversation, um, and, to, and to get away from this, this fairness frame. You just said something really important. This was a research-based argument. 
talk about where you found the research and how you used it, because it's not a matter of simply throwing some numbers up on the op-ed page in the New York Times and voila. Yeah, so, so, so the strategy, and, and I um, uh, uh, profoundly, radically, um, had no idea what I was doing at the beginning. So, 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 <laughs> That's not an unfamiliar <laughs> so, feeling to many people here, so, right? So, so the strategy um, uh, took, took, it took a year of, um, of getting advice from, from Stuart and other Thank people you, um, um, to figure out what to do, but, but um, th there was already a lot of research on the library shelf showing that gays and lesbians don't hurt the military. And that research didn't matter because no one was reading it. And so what we decided to do was engage in what would become a decade-long conversational strategy and research-based strategy where every three or four months for a decade, we would produce a new study or release a new uh, a series of data. And the study or the data would always be designed to ask exactly the same question. Every single time, exactly the same question. So it was iteration. Do gays and lesbians harm the military? Or does discrimination harm the military? And so we never gave our authors writing assignments. We never said, you have to go reach this conclusion. We just asked them to go do a study that asks that question in a slightly different empirical context. So every study was, it was around the organized around the same question, but it was slightly different from the previous study. But that wasn't the trick. The trick was to not let the research stay on the shelf, but three or four times a year with the, with the release of each study to work really hard to generate national media headlines, which meant Associated Press, New York Times, Washington Post, or up that level. Um, of media coverage of the research. And, th and that literally worked every time. So three or four times a year for a decade, we managed to get a national news story around the message that it's not gays and lesbians that hurt the military, it's discrimination. Which is why, by the way, it seems so stupid and boring now to, to you know, you think like gays and lesbians hurt the military, like what a stupid argument. But people believed that in the early 90s seems in retrospect awfully easy. You show up with a study, drop it on the desk of a reporter at the AP or the New York Times. We've all done this. Hey, I've got a new study. Here you go. Above the fold. Magic. But that's not exactly how it works. No. A lot of relationship building. Tell me. Actually, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What happened? How'd you get there? Um, so the acid drip that I had every day for 10 years I was, love this metaphor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was about how to convince reporters to take the research seriously. And, and uh, b because by definition, we were trying to pitch research organized around a stale message. We were trying to make the message stale. The uh, beat reporter for the New York Times on Don't Ask, Don't Tell uh, in the late 90s told me at one point, I'm not interested in another study that shows that gays and lesbians don't um, hurt the military. So, so the question you're asking was the question um, and it was a little different in each, uh, with, with each new study, and it always, um, and the bar would, would go up with each new study um, um, to figure out how to break it. It, it, it usually came down to finding uh, an interesting human, human interest angle um, to go along with the, with the study. So I'll, I'll just give one, one example. So um, we found out from um, the uh, government that um, the military was spending uh, something like $180 million on firing gays and lesbians. We knew that number was wrong. So we did a study that showed that the number was off by about 100%. So they, they'd spent about twice that firing gays and lesbians. That study in and of itself wouldn't have been newsworthy. 
We got a former Secretary of Defense to sign the study as an author. That made it newsworthy. The study went to Good Morning America with five million viewers. And so what is that study saying? Discrimination hurts the military, not gays and lesbians. So that was just kind of one example of, the, of you know, 30 or 40 times when we, when we did that. Communications is the linchpin through all of this. Why? Why not go in and have private meetings with lawmakers or folks at the Pentagon? Or perhaps you did. Other groups were holding private law, uh, meetings with lawmakers, and, and we were actually using our research to reach out to the military, and that was, a, that was a parallel insider communications game because we wanted to empower allies within the armed forces to be able to corrode the rationale for discrimination to within. So there were a lot of... St we did about 30 visits three times a year to military universities and cultivated a list of about 100 allies, uh, military professors. Um, so that was, that was a separate strategy. But, but the reason for the national communications was because the research would have meant nothing to our allies in Congress and in the military um, and elsewhere if it wasn't covered in the media. So, 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 and that was a lesson that I had to learn, was that, that a research that gets, a research study that doesn't get media coverage is not valuable, 99 times out of 100, is not valuable um, in Washington. And so it, it, it only kind of has a truth status, if you will. That study only has a truth status and, and becomes useful as an arrow in a quiver if it gets media coverage. But, but, but the problem, and sorry, uh, no, 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 please. to elaborate, is that you, know, you think about a, the thousands of studies that are published every day, the vast majority get zero media coverage, right? So there's a tremendous, it's, the phenomenon of literature loss is, is, is immediate and massive, and that's the current we were swimming against. So we, so we were one of the, the weird, rare research organizations that was spending most of its money on communications, not research. And yet, it didn't happen overnight. 10 years, it, um, or so, more. Uh, it was an iteration strategy. The, the, the logic was that if you, and, uh, and this was something I learned from, from communications experts, it's not something I was trained um, as an academic, but that if you, know, if you saw one Honda commercial during your life, that when you go to buy a car, you'd have zero chance of buying a Honda, of course. Mm -hmm. And so it's only through that steady drip of messaging that minds change, and so, and I think a lot of think tanks and, 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 and NGOs make what I see as a mistake of, and, and I know, I get that it's very boring to study one thing again and again and again, but, but they do an incredible study, and, and sometimes doing one study does have an effect on changing minds, but, but most of the time they do a study and then they move on. And, and, and our strategy at the Palm Center was premised on the assumption that we're gonna have to repeat our message in the media again and again and again and again in order to get traction and in order to suck the oxygen out of that argument. It, it, during the end game when President Obama held the final debates on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, some people were still making the argument that gays and lesbians hurt the military, but they were laughed at. I mean, The Daily Show would do segments mocking them. Uh, we'd had 10 years of messaging Arabic linguists fired for being gay in the midst of a dire shortage of Arabic language translators. So, so 10 years of messaging like that sucked the oxygen, or, or actually not just Arabic linguists fired, new study shows that Arabic linguists were fired for, so that's what sucked the oxygen out of the argument. 2011, President Obama yes. finally repeals, don't ask, don't tell. Barely. Talk to me about the months leading up to that, because it was barely. Uh, we, we almost lost, and this was, this was just a, a reminder to, to me and everyone in the movement that 
communications is, is, is essential and necessary, but without the other strategies, litigation and lobbying and grassroots organizing, uh, street theater even, um, um, the, the public education wouldn't have worked, so it wouldn't have been sufficient. So, so the other groups had to come in at that point and, and, and work their magic. So I'm going to open it up for questions in a quick minute so that we can all have a conversation with Aaron about this because I'm guessing you have some wonderful questions to ask. Tristan is going to be walking around, and I think Maggie as well, with microphones. Uh, if you would, please uh, wait till they actually get to you to take the mic, then give your name and tell folks who you're with. Uh, how did you feel on the day that this finally came to pass, personally? Uh, Obviously, um, I, I don't, what was that like? I started crying on CNN. That's how I felt. Um, I, I couldn't. Uh, I, I was out of body. It was, it was numbing. I, I was joyous. I was sad because I knew I was about to lose the issue that had given me meaning for ten years. Um, uh, it's a good problem to have, but it is a problem. So it was, a, it was a, an emotional overload. Okay, now let's just back in time. So the good news is it has been repealed, but surely you encountered some obstacles along the way. It wasn't just that slow drip, sometimes the drip didn't work. Talk about what those might have been. Where, so, where did you run into problems? So the strategy did work. Uh, literally every uh, messaging campaign that we planned um, did get traction at the national level. So those, but, but, but the problems were, so the strategy worked. The problems were within each messaging campaign, we would sometimes bring something to reporters that we'd worked on for two years and they would say, eh, forget about it. And since our, since our universe of, of, of media outlets was so narrow, um, it was hard to figure out how to retool and make, that, um, make that, uh, that product, if you will, newsworthy to someone else. I, I, just one example. Please. We spent uh, two years and $100,000 in staff time, personally, re not me, but staff, reaching out to 4,000 retired generals and admirals and got 104 of them to sign a statement calling for the end of, um, the, the, the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell because uh, discrimination hurts the military. And uh, we couldn't get anyone to break that. The, the New York Times wasn't interested. Um, Pentagon AP wasn't interested. And so that was, an, that was an example. My good friend Andy Burness, who's out here somewhere, uh, reminds me every time I see him, uh, as I think we all probably need to remember, that relationships matter. A big piece of the communication strategy, as I understand it from our conversations, is not just that the New York Times was there to cover the news, but that there were relationships that had been cultivated over time. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, so in that case of the generals and admirals, um, we had a relationship with a local AP bureau chief in Baltimore, and one of the admirals who'd signed our statement was had been the superintendent at the Naval Academy close to Baltimore. And so because I had a relationship with that bureau chief, uh, he was able to take the story and make national news from a, from a local AP bureau. But the, but the relationships were not just on the, on the, well, I guess that's the front end, but it was, of course, the, the back end relationships with scholars around the world who were willing to do work for a very low rate of pay because they just wanted to pursue social justice. And also with people in the military who were willing to take the research and, and use the research to reach out to their own colleagues um, inside the Pentagon. And was that easy to do, to, to, to find these folks and to build relationships with them? I mean, just pick up the phone and say, hey, it's Aaron. Want to chat? Um, it, no, it, it, uh, especially with the military, it, it took, um, uh, it was just, it was almost like a, a what's like a, a one person at a time method. Um, um, You're building a network. 
Well, yeah, because um, my staff sent letters to the superintendents of dozens of military universities asking for invitations. Um, this was in the very beginning um, to, get, to come give a speech on gays in the military. And only one person responded, and they said, forget it. Um, and so it took um, meeting a military professor from West Point at a conference and then saying, you know, could I come to West Point just to tour campus? And he said yes. And then next year, could I come back and deliver a lecture? He said yes. And then the next year, could you call your friend at Air Force Academy and have them invite me? And he said yes. And then, you know, things started to amplify faster, but it, it really was one person at a time. What's the, if you can summarize this, what's the one key strategy you think that's missing from, I'm going to take this out into the room a little bit. What's the one key strategy that's missing from most foundation and NGO communications? Um, that's a really tough question, but, but my sense is that with, I, I, no disrespect. Are you guys cool? He's about to go there. I think many communications departments importantly and critically work hard to get their organization's name in the media. I, I get how important that is. I also think that there's a missed opportunity to use communications to change hearts and minds and to change public opinion because people think it's too expensive. My group was operating at less than half million dollars a year, which is pretty cheap compared to most NGOs. Um, and we were able to change public opinion. And I see a lot of NGOs kind of passing over that opportunity because they think they can't. Evan Wolfson, who was one of the, probably the chief architect of the marriage equality campaign. To just, get, to, just to remind folks, Evan Wolfson was the president of Freedom to Marry. Yeah. And he said that, that what a lot of NGOs forget is that it's the time between elections when we have to work to change hearts and minds and change public opinion. We can't rely on the politicians to give us cover. Questions? I'm going to go ahead. I see, I think it's Amy. All right. Uh, Tristan's going to make his way down. If you would, go ahead. I know who you are, but for everybody else, identify yourself. Tristan, will you, Amy's right up here uh, in the third row. Uh, hi, I'm Amy Lynn Smith. I'm a freelance writer and strategist based right here in Detroit. Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm intrigued, as a, particularly as a storyteller, about what you said about using human interest stories to support the, the data and the research and to elevate that. I'd like to know a little bit more about how you went about weaving those two things together so that they were really compatible and, and uh, told the stories. So not just the numbers, the people. Yeah, so what a great question. And, and that was another lesson I was not taught as an academic, but the research was pretty much never newsworthy unless we had great spokespersons to illustrate the injury that the study was illustrating or the benefit that the study was illustrating. Um, so for example, we did a 70-page <laughs> study of whether the British military had fallen apart when they had allowed gays and lesbians to serve in the British military. And um, that was not interesting to the New York Times. Um, the British found that they had no problems with gays and, and lesbians in the military, and that's what the study reported. What was interesting to the New York Times was when we came back to them and, and repitched the study, but this time with an openly gay member of a submarine crew who'd been fired from the British military and then rehired once they lifted their ban. Just to give another example, we found data that in the middle of intense shortages, 
the military was hiring people from the backdoor draft. These were people who had been separated from the military 20 years ago. They were teachers, bus drivers, lawyers, doctors. They were not even in the reserves, but they were being hired back into the military because the military was so desperate for personnel um, that they were using this backdoor draft. At the same time, they were firing perfectly competent gay people um, uh, uh, who were doing the same jobs. That wasn't interesting to reporters. And then we found a family where the military had hired a mother um, who had been working in the civilian sector for 20 years, having just fired her gay son. And so that was, that was an example of, of, so the data were not interesting without the human interest angle to illustrate it. So you and I have chatted, and uh, you have a bit of a beef with George Lakoff. I think a few other folks in the room might as well. Want to explain that? I should probably do that a little bit more. I should be a little more eloquent about this. George Lakoff has a model that's all about framing. You see things slightly differently. Want to explain where you're coming from? Well, George Lakoff, uh, who I, is smarter than I am, and uh, and you know far more accomplished, and 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 I deeply respect his work. But his advice to progressives was that. We as progressives, and I'll say we because I'm knee-jerk liberal, uh, <laughs> uh, but he, he said that we need to get better at framing. And wh what he said, so he gives the example of a, a, a bill that, um, that is designed to pollute the air and give you know, hand out benefits to coal companies, and the Republicans uh, package that bill as the Clear Skies Initiative, and once they do that, you know, the Democrats are on the defensive and, they, and they've lost. And he says that, that you always have to use your own frame because once you start buying into the other person's frame, um, then you've lost, you've lost the messaging war. And, 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 and at least in the narrow context of gays and lesbians in the military, and also transgender military service, we thought it was important to actually use the frame that the other side was using in order to justify bad policy, but to flip that, that frame on its head. So, 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 so we thought it was important not to try to use slick packaging or try to you know, come up with some new way to talk about the situation, but just to tell the truth. Just look at the data and tell the truth and show that gays and lesbians don't hurt the military and transgender troops don't either, and use the truth rather than slick packaging to try to convey, uh, to, to try to, to, to do public education and to change hearts and minds. Other questions out there. I see someone right next to Tristan. I'll move to the other side of the room in a second, but if you would, go ahead. Your name and, uh, and where you're from, and then when you're done with your question, hand the mic back to Tristan, please. Great. Hi, I'm Kitty Julian from the Pittsburgh Foundation. Um, we're looking in, in our region at just having lost one of our two daily newspapers today. Um, which is a tragedy for lots of reasons, but as you're look, talking about the strategy of really bringing these research studies toward media, as the media landscape continues to change nationally, what are uh, some strategies you're seeing working really well that don't rely on traditional journalism because we can't rely on it existing necessarily in the future? That's a great question. It's a sad question, but that's a great question. It, it, it is a great question, and, and I think I'm the wrong person to answer that because the Palm Center was purposefully clunky and backwards on Web 2.0 and then social media because the hearts and minds that we were trying to change was through network news, and we thought that we could only get to network news by placing stories in Associated Press, New York Times, and Washington Post, 
And, and I understand that there are many, many brilliant strategies for using social media and uh, not, you know, untraditional approaches to, to change hearts and minds. But, but, but you know, we were, our ultimate aim was members of Congress and the White House and the judiciary and the leaders in the military, opinion leaders in other words. And so to create a virtuous cycle between opinion leaders and, and Main Street and the most efficient, as a small organization, we didn't feel we had the bandwidth to use social media. I mean, we actually thought it would take more bandwidth to do social media well than to do old media well. And so, so even with the transgender campaign, which only wrapped up three months ago, we, we stayed focused on, on just uh, mainstream uh, old school media. So, so I, I don't have insights into, into alternative approaches. Can we talk a little bit about the transgender ban? Congratulations, by the way. Does every, you want to just explain to people what's happened? Because some of us may have missed this. Um, when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, uh, transgender people were uh, left on the side of the road. There was still a transgender ban that was in place. Um, so we used uh, exactly the same strategy on transgender that we used on gay, lesbian, bisexual, with the one difference that the, that the, said, uh, the set of phony arguments that, that was propping up bad policy was not quite the unit cohesion rationale. It wasn't quite that transgender people hurt the military because straight people can't trust them, or, or non-transgender people can't trust them. It was that transgender people hurt the military because their health care is so complicated to provide. And so we, so we used research to um, help the American Medical Association um, uh, 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 pass a, a resolution that said that actually the military wasn't telling the truth about transgender health. That generated a New York Times editorial and the bubble burst. Wow. Wow. Other questions? Other questions? Uh, I see you and I will get to you in one moment, but I think over on this side of the room, any questions? Up, up in the front row. Yes, sir. Just wait for the microphone next to Elka. Is that fuzz? Yeah. Hang on one quick second. Emma is coming. Hi, my name is Leandro. I'm a political scientist, and we, me and my business partner, we run a, an advocacy firm in Brazil. And I want to know uh, what was the lobbying approach besides the communication approach that you just mentioned uh, when repealing the, the law? The, the, the lobbying approach? Well, so at the same time that my group was doing public education, other groups were in the halls of Congress, just literally hundreds of meetings doing patient education over the years, um, using our research. And so there was a, there was a virtuous cycle um, with the lobbying uh, and, and the public education campaign. And of course, there were litigators who were suing the military, raising questions about the constitutionality of the policy, and there were grassroots activists who were chaining themselves to the White House fence. And so all of this was going on together. I think for a lot of folks, so you know, before we get there, let's talk about messengers. Because you had a compelling message, you had data, you had relationships with a lot of people, including journalists and folks in the military. But you and I have talked about this a lot, messengers matter. Want to talk to me a little bit about what that means to yeah. you? Yeah. Um, so one very painful lesson to learn um, was that the Palm Center and I personally were the worst messengers for our own message. Um, and we, we literally had just opened our doors. We hadn't done anything. We hadn't even released a 
not, I mean, not a study, not even a piece of paper, when the leading expert uh, in favor of Don't Ask, Don't Tell referred to us as a group of homosexual activists. And so, you know, when their side went to Congress and argued that gays and lesbians will harm the military, they were experts in forming public policy with state-of-the-art evidence. But when we spoke, we were homosexual activists. And of course, we did have an agenda that was hidden in plain sight. So that didn't mean we cooked the books, but it did mean we had um, a, a point of view. Um, but we were not the best messengers because we were seen as biased. And so what we had to do in most cases, and this was what was so painful, was not take credit for our own work and not put our fingerprints anywhere near um, many of our stories. And, and, and the best validators for us were people who you would think at first glance might be against gays and lesbians in the military. So we spent years and years and years cultivating, in particular, generals and admirals, um, former Secretary of Defense, former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and asked them to sign statements, co-author our studies, sign op-eds. Per perhaps the, the high-water mark of this was we worked with General Shalikashvili, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, so the top military officer in the United States to publish a New York Times op-ed on January 2nd, 2007, um, where he said, uh, I used to support discrimination, but I was wrong. I've read the research, and it's true, gays and lesbians do not hurt the military. It's discrimination that hurts the military. That op-ed made it safe for every other ally in the military to speak up. Um, if I had signed that op-ed, well, it wouldn't have been published, but it also wouldn't have been useful. So we, we had to get validators to take credit for our message for us. Another question from the crowd. Looking out there, I see hands. How about here in the center, third row, Emma, if you can make your way over. And again, your name, who you're with, and then if you would, hand the mic back. I am Lois Shea from the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation. Um, I'm really struck by what you said about the fairness frame not working. And it seems uh, counterintuitive because it seems so fundamental to who we are as a country and as a people. And I'm wondering what lessons we might take from that in communicating about other things. Um, for instance, opportunity inequality in this country. That's a great question, because that's where we were going to go next. These Thank are, you. These are brilliant questions. Yeah, and, and, and just on the, on the fairness frame, um, uh, Admiral Mullen, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was re repealed, used the fairness frame and, and the integrity frame. And, and his messaging was it, it compromises military integrity to force people to lie. So he was able to get away with that frame uh, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I don't think he could have gotten away with that frame if the community hadn't made it safe to, get, to, to use that frame with 10 years of messaging that gays and lesbians don't hurt the military because his own generals and admirals then would have had um, uh, a, a, a weapon to use against him. He actually, um, I, I did an event with Admiral Mullen after Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal to, um, to uh, you know, we're just kind of asking him to explain his role um, when he was gracious enough to do the event. But he, he admonished me a little bit, which was fine, but he, he said, you know, why, why were you guys using the fairness and integrity frame for all those years um, and, and instead talking about um, military effectiveness? Um, look, you know, we, for better or worse, this is a highly militarized society. Scholars worry about that. What that means is, you know, of course the military deserves respect for defending the nation, but when respect translates into uncritical glorification, that's what militarization is. 
in a highly militarized society, the message that a policy is harming the military is, all, to my mind, is almost always going to trump concerns about fairness and democracy and equality, which is a bummer, and it's not my personal preference, but it was just the landscape that we were faced with. But I think that you're gesturing at a very important point, which was that our strategy was not cost-free, because in buying into the phony arguments of the other side, if only for the sake of refutation, we were buying into a militarized set of assumptions about the nobility and the value and, you know, you, you know if you look at the gay lesbian messaging for 10 years, it, it would, it, it's as if there was no problem whatsoever with the wars or with what, 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 what the military does around the world. We purposefully couldn't talk about torture or sexual assault or, or the downside of militarism. Um, and a lot of communities, minority communities, have made the same choice. So, so in terms of lessons for other moments and opportunities, um, I, you know, I have to be very careful, um, very humble about this because my experience is only in the context of two issue campaigns, gays and lesbians in the military and, and transgender military service, but, but what I can do is underscore that, that our messaging was not cost-free and it was not, uh, it, it was not perfect messaging, um, but we made the strategic choice to use that messaging because uh, well, I did, because I didn't see another path to getting to repeal, and my concern was not, I mean, I was very concerned about gay and lesbian troops who were being fired, but my bigger concern was that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was so dangerous for American citizenship to have the government firing people on the basis of who we are is a very, very dangerous precedent for, for citizenship, and in order to get rid of that, we had to use imperfect messaging. Another question. Another question. Uh, here in the center, about three or four rows back, Tristan's coming with the microphone right now. Thanks. Hi, George Perlop, uh, George Perlop Consulting from Brussels. Hi. Thank you so much. Great work. I guess in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's great to hear this story again. And it feels, and I'm saying story because 2010, 11 feels like ancient history now in a lot of ways and so much has happened since then in terms of the LGBT movement with marriage, et cetera, et cetera. So much more to go in terms of what's happening at the state level and still um, transgender rights and things like that. And at the same time, you know, we've talked a little bit about social media and even the fact about truth, you know, even propel when we, we tell truths in the society and the truth has less value in, in, uh, in news and uh, around the world these days. And I'm just curious with all that and where this movement is going and other movements are going, what do you think you know, we need to be thinking about as communicators and strategists and researchers? Uh, and the question I think, George, if I can sort of simplify is, does the truth matter? Does research still matter in a time when apparently we can all live in our own reality? Can I just say how helpful and awesome these questions are? I'm, I'm, yes, I, this is, uh, this is, thank you. This is, thank you so much. I don't believe that the truth doesn't matter anymore. But I do believe that social justice organizations um, have fallen asleep at the wheel a little bit in not doing enough to use communications and public education in long game strategies to contest the culture of nonsense that inflects so much of our political discourse. And I'll, I'll, just, give, I'll just give one. Oh, oh. Yeah, um, yeah. 
I'll just give one um, micro example. You know, I was talking with Danny before the session about foster care and how there's just, you know, no government spending or not enough government spending on, on, on keeping families strong. And so much of our politics is a function of the tiny size of government right now. Our government is tiny. And when you factor in the, fa the fact that uh, a trillion dollars, not 600 million as the media reports, but a trillion dollars goes to national security, the amount of federal and state spending on civilian programs, on butter as opposed to guns, is nothing compared to other Western, Western industrialized countries. And the reason for that, of course, is because our tax collection and our tax base is so, so low, because we collect far less in taxes than other <laughs> comparable countries. And yet, there's a, a, an assumption in this country that spending is high and the government is big and taxes are high. Where is the messaging, not just once, but time after time after time after time, again and again and again, month after month, year after year, new study shows government spending is low. New study shows taxes are low. New study shows government decision making is actually more effective than corporate decision making in many, in many different contexts. We have allowed, I'm not, I'm not allowed to be partisan here, right? Let's we have, not. We have, Let's allowed, not. we have allowed some people, we have allowed some people to convince, <laughs> to convince the public of blatant falsehoods. And so every time a Democrat tries to, every time a person tries to, <laughs> <laughs> Every time a politician tries to raise taxes, they run into this massive public delusion. And so Barack Obama, in his brilliance, is able to get with what, I think, a 4% marginal tax increase um, on, on income over $435,000. But that's not nearly what we need in order to make our society healthy and whole and solve some of the foster, you know, foster ch uh, ch children problem that Danny was telling me about. And, and, yet, and yet we're not educating the public about these falsehoods. And, 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 and I get deeply that the education isn't always enough. Look at global warming. Um, much of the public does understand that um, that, that climate change is a function of human action, and yet we don't have climate change legislation. So, so public education isn't sufficient. But what I would say is, look at when President Obama tried to get public, uh, climate change legislation. He failed. But let's say he had a 20, 30% chance of getting climate change legislation. If we hadn't done the public education to help the public understand that climate change is, is caused by humans, he would have had a 0% chance of, of, of getting legislation. We have to educate the public about the culture of nonsense that makes it impossible to pursue reform before we're going to pursue the reform. That, that is what I would say about the truth mattering. We have to make the truth matter through research and public education. Let's, yeah. So let's, let's, let's test the, the model that you developed on Don't Ask, Don't Tell in sort of a contemporary context. I'm just going to toss out a couple of issues. Pick one, pick two. Uh, gun control, something very near and dear to my family's heart. Uh, immigration, a number of folks here working on that. Yeah. Racial justice. Racial, yeah. Um, in two minutes and 24 seconds. We'll go over. Anybody mind if we eat into your networking time just a little bit? I'm curious what he has to say. All right, I don't see anybody, so let's go ahead. Okay. So, um, not an expert on these. Uh, this might be upside down, dead wrong. Stipulated. But I'll try. Um, so on gun control, um, I teach gun control to my, to my kids, 
And you and I talked about this. I call it gun safety. We used to do some work on this. And but you it, told me to use yeah. that frame, and I forgot because I have a bad memory. That's okay. Um, we'll just say guns for now. Gun safety. I teach my kids, and I have trouble finding research that shows that gun control works. And I see a lot of the advocacy groups doing great work, but at some level playing the NRA's game and trying to do it better than the NRA, which is never going to work. So would it work to publish study after study after study after study that shows that gun control saves lives, gun control makes people, gun safety makes people safer, makes people safer. Um, uh, gun safety works, um, and, to, and to generate messaging around those studies time after time again. I don't think it would be sufficient to, to, to get gun, gun safety legislation, but I think it would help, I think it would help a lot. Immigration. Immigration is, is a really tough one, but, uh, and, 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 and I've worked a little bit with the folks uh, uh, working on messaging on immigration, um, but one of, and, and I think that the immigration conversation is inflected by um, many aspects of delusion and uh, many falsehoods that could be contested by a stream of research. Um, but one of the basic falsehoods that I think sustains a lot of bad policy is that people buy into the lie that this country gives more to immigrants than it takes, including illegal immigrants. We actually steal about, if my memory is correct, I think it's uh, $8 billion a year in social security taxes from undocumented workers um, who are working and getting social security contributions from their employers but will never collect on that money. So what about a stream of messaging that shows based on research that that immigrants are contributing and giving more to society than they're taking. Um, uh, uh, I know that's being done a little bit, but, but what about more? And obviously, and we didn't talk about this at the outset, but it's been an amazingly soul-crushing year uh, for those folks working on racial justice, for all of us as Americans. Unfortunately, we turn on the television or flip on Twitter, and there's another awful event for us to contend with and to try to understand racial justice. Yeah, and so, so, so verging far, far, far out, outside of my expertise, you know, the reason the don't ask, don't tell model worked is because bad policy was propped up by a lie that was concealing paranoia. So there was a lie about military effectiveness that was concealing dislike and fear of gays. And in the racial justice conversation, people are more honest uh, with their racism uh, than they, uh, perhaps counterintuitively, um, than they were about um, their homophobia in the don't ask, don't tell situation. So, uh, so, so again, with lots of you know caution and humility about whether um, this uh, approach would work on racial justice, I believe that that despite the fact that a lot of people who oppose um, fairness um, uh, uh, um, are willing to be honest about their racism, um, I believe that it would be helpful if we had a string of research again and again and again and again with public messaging around Michelle Alexander's point that we live in Jim Crow, that this is Jim Crow, that, 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 that when we tell ourselves we're in a democracy, um, that that's just not true because Jim Crow is alive and well. The laws that articulate it are slightly less, um, uh, 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 are slightly less um, explicitly about racial injustice, but they nonetheless have the effect that Michelle Alexander says they do, and, 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 and I, I don't think the public gets that enough. I think we have to leave it there. Thank you all so much. We have a lot more ahead.
I want to thank Aaron. I think you now, if you didn't before, understand that this man is an American hero, and I am so grateful that you were here with us today. All right, now it's time for us to, I guess we have a little networking break. Here's something that I'd just like to share. In the spirit of why we gather, I want to make sure that you talk to people you don't know. I saw folks as they were coming in, seeing people they knew, and saying, hey, where are you going to sit? Can I ask a, just a, as a favor to me, the next time we come in here, sit next to somebody you don't know. Because that's the ultimate aim of the network, is to connect us to people. Somebody in here is a future mentor, or an employee, or a boss. And the only way you're going to meet them is by talking to somebody you don't know. So by all means, please, go out and talk to strangers. Everybody here. I have the luxury of knowing many, many, many of you. You're all cool. See you in a bit.